Blog Talk Radio. The Four Persons, Inc. is a federally registered and licensed 501c3 charity. Any use of any of our content without our permission is prohibited by law. Our purpose is evangelization, education, and social action. Please go to our website at thefourpersons.com or our blog site at thefourpersons.net to make your tax-deductible donation by credit or debit card. You can also send a check to The Four Persons, Inc., P.O. Box 11214, Manassas, Virginia, 20113. To contact us, send us an email at email at thefourpersons.com. Listening to the Luke Haskell Show on the Four Persons Network. Luke takes a deep dive every show into history, theology, and scripture. If you want to truly be educated, make way for the hammer of heretics himself, ladies and gentlemen, Luke Haskell. Together and go through the history, and uh, it's, it's creating a pretty good, uh, pretty uh, good picture so far. I think. Yeah, it's a really fascinating book. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting when you look at the four gospels. Boy, it each it, it's easy to see the wisdom of the church because each one of the gospels kind of puts just a little bit different different spin on it, a little bit different take on it. And uh, Matthew's gospel, um, really, he he really wants to make that connection. It's almost like he's a lawyer building a case. He wants to make that case that Jesus is the Messiah that was that was called uh, on over and over again in the Old Testament. And uh, so it details, 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 and uh, and let's get into it. Well, we're getting a little bit of a breakup uh, when you're talking, but uh, I still understood everything, so hopefully that'll clear up. Okay, well, if you need me to repeat anything, uh, I can, uh, through the magic of editing software, I can go back and cut some of that stuff out, for the at least for the value of our archive listeners. Yeah, it's uh, I was able to hear everything, but I, but I heard what was 
broken just a tiny bit, and I filled in the pieces. So to do a quick review, uh, we showed in the first couple chapters of Matthew, Matthew shows the begets to show how Jesus is in the line of David and the lineage back to Abraham. Jesus will fulfill the prophecy that the kingdom of David will never end, and there will always be a human authority on the throne. And through Jesus, the promises of Abraham will be fulfilled. So James at the Council of Jerusalem quoted Amos, showing how this prophecy was fulfilled in the church. Uh, and this council was the mustard seed in the universal uh, magisterium to, to come. So Matthew shows us how the kingdom of heaven is coming into being through Christ. We also understand that if God did not make a covenant promise with Abraham, then the Israelites who entered a covenant established in a covenant oath and cursed with God would have been killed by God in order for that curse to be fulfilled and God fulfilling that promise uh, for, for failing to keep the oath and to take on the curse. So we brought up this 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 word hesed that uh, we see this God's steadfast love. And through hesed, God's steadfast love, the curse against Israel was held in abeyance in order to fulfill Abraham's promise through the Catholic through the Catholic Church and Jesus himself as the true Israel took on the curse of death in substitution for the entire nation so that a remnant will be saved. We see this remnant coming into being uh, through Netter, the shoot of Jesse, which we discussed. So, and this idea of Jesus being Israel, uh, if you see that Jesus also marries a Gentile bride, then this is where we have that connection where Jesus talks about flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone, and that the church becomes the spiritual Israel through union with the true Israel of Christ who went to the cross. So this is why Augustine called you know the cross a marriage bed, types and heavenly realities, and we saw that it is Jesus and the apostles who, in the scriptures, guided us to look at scripture in this fashion. And, uh, uh, well, an example would be how the Jews did it also, where uh, the Jews knew all these psalms and everything. And when somebody would, you know, say the first few verses, they knew that they were just to follow through through the whole, you know, through the whole psalm. And this is the way this, the, the gospels are set up. Uh, and even some of the epistles are set up where we have these key understandings uh, developed through following through wherever the apostles were, were taking us, but only gave us a few words uh, the, in, uh, to show us where to go. So Matthew shows us how Jesus is the true Moses establishing the true Exodus through the true Red Sea of baptism, being saved by blood, giving entrance into the land flowing with milk and honey which is the sacramental life in the reestablished kingdom of David on earth as the kingdom of heaven. We showed how the meeting tent shows salvation through Christ and his church, how Paul created the imagery of how we enter the flesh of Christ through the true bronze lava of baptism, which is in front of the veil. And the priest needed to wash in the bronze lava before entering the veil or sacrificing. So we showed how Paul explained the veil as the flesh of Christ and yet describes a unity, a oneness of the flesh of Christ and the bride, which is the church. 
we showed how Matthew purposely brought up in his gospel that John wore camel's hair and the outer tent covering was in camel's hair, showing the baptism of repentance of the Jews before the baptism in the quickening spirit of Christ. So we showed how Jesus did not need to be baptized, but to be Christian, we are to follow Christ. And Jesus' baptism shows us spiritually what happens to us. The heavens opened up, the Spirit of God is present, and the Father says, this is my Son of whom I am well pleased. Baptism is entrance into the family of God. So we showed that over and over again, that God made sure that the line of from Abraham to David to Jesus as king in the sacramental kingdom of the church would remain, even if God needed to take some crazy detours, and even if Israel was in a broken covenant, and over and over again, becoming the harlot through falling back into paganism. And, you know, that's Hesed. That's God's steadfast love that he did this. Right. And the detours that you, that you uh, mentioned just shows that, you know, we're not able to derail God's plans. We're not talented enough. No matter how bad we screw up, we're not talented enough to derail God's plans. God is able to use even our stumbles and our indiscretions and work through those things, not that he intends us to fail, not that he wants us to fail, it's not that it's good that we fail, but even if we do, God can still work through that and use that to his, uh, to fulfill his ultimate plan. Judah's indiscretion with Tamar uh, and David's with Bathsheba were just two examples that we pointed out. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So we're at Matthew 4. So let's read a little bit of Matthew 4. And when Jesus had heard that John was delivered up, he retired into Galilee, and leaving the city Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum on the sea coast, in the borders of Zebulon and Naphtalim, that it might be fulfilled, which was said by Isaiah the prophet, land of Zebulon and land of Naphtalim, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people that sat in darkness have seen a great light, and to them that sat in the region of the shadow of death, light is sprung up. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, do penance, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So this area of, of northern Galilee and Transjordan fell into Assyrian hands around 734 B.C., so Isaiah's promise of a liberation may be being used by Matthew, Matthew to show a spiritual liberation through Christ. So by Matthew's day, Galilee was a half Gentiles. So Jesus, who comes from the union of Ruth and Boaz, a Gentile and a Jew, may begin his ministry among Gentiles and Jews in order to show us a future unification of the universal church. Uh, remember, it was Ruth who uh, said, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Uh, I think that was Rachel, sorry. <laughs> but a, a, this is uh, a great, 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 you get the picture, grandmother of Jesus. <laughs> so right, way, right. Back, way back then, this is, this is already being planned, just, you know, just like you were saying. You know, God just keeps keeps it going. He, he, his, his will will be fulfilled. So 
the church became Catholic, which means universal, when the sign of the promise of Abraham and circumcision for Jews only was fulfilled and baptism into the promise of Abraham fulfilled, baptism into the kingdom of heaven for both Jews and Gentiles. So Matthew wrote, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. From our last presentation, the sacrifices God established were, in addition to being a pedagogy, making the Israelites sacrifice what they once worshipped, types for the Jews sacrificing Christ. So Jesus is showing prophecy fulfilled and how the Jews, except for a small group, will refuse him, even though he took on the curse of death uh, uh, the Jews fell into when they swore on their own lives to keep the law and failed. So the covenant of the Jews God made with Israel was a blood oath, one of the participants who entered into the covenant oath fails in the law of the oath, then the punishment is death. And yet God, in order to keep his promise with Abraham in his tested steadfast love, held the punishment in abeyance in order for the bloodline to be preserved up until Christ. Then with Christ, the covenant of Abraham will be fulfilled. But in order to bring to light this more perfect promise, what was held in abeyance needed to be fulfilled. But due to God's steadfast love, Jesus, as a spiritual Israel, took on the curse of the oath and willingly went to the cross, first to save the Jews, second in order to establish a new perfect universal covenant of both Jews and Gentiles. I know that's still a little bit review, but uh, you know, I don't know who uh, you know listened to the first uh, first part of Matthew right. that we did last week. Right. I think it's important to finish the thought here. Matthew was calling back to the great prophecy from Isaiah 9, and you hear this prophecy read in Catholic churches around the world on Christmas Day. The people who walked in darkness have seen great light. For a child is born to us, a son is given us. It reads like a past event, some 700 years before it happened, yet he is the light who caused the recreated day to emerge as the day of light, the Lord's day, the first day, Sunday. And John talks of it later in the book of Revelation, but he also points back to the first day of creation. So here Matthew ties in with Isaiah. You have said, and it bears repeating, that we have to look upon Scripture as a single fabric, because time is not linear to God. So God is seeing exactly. Genesis, Isaiah, and Revelation all at the same time. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's if we look if we if we look at scripture as God looking in, then at the same time you see the the Levitical priests uh washing at the bronze laver. You see the uh, Joshua crossing the Jordan. You see the, the people being baptized into the church today. And uh, and, and this, then the most mystical and, and confounding thing of all is that you see Jesus on the cross and he's thinking about Luke and John at that moment. We're in his <laughs> thoughts. We're in, we're in his, uh, and just it's just awe-inspiring to think about it, but it's true. Exactly, exactly. And we are all the beloved disciples. Anybody who has been baptized into the church, 
who lo- loves Christ and you know is living for Christ. So yeah. who is to have Mary as their mother? All of us. Paul writes, as it was answered answered to Moses when he was to finish the tabernacle, see saith he that thou make all things according to the pattern which was shown thee on the mount, but now he hath obtained a better ministry by how much also he is mediator of a better testament, which is established on better promises. So then he goes on, for if that former had been faultless, there should not indeed a place have been sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the day shall come, saith the Lord, and I will perfect unto the house of Israel and unto the house of Judah a new testament, not according to the testament which I made to their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my testament and regarded them not, saith the Lord. And if we can, again, place our minds outside of time and see the true Moses, Christ building the true tabernacle, then we can see even more imagery here for Jesus establishing the true exodus. Jesus has said, I will build my church. In the flesh is building the body of Christ in his church in the more perfect covenant with a more perfect ritual system and a more perfect priesthood. So the old does not go away. It is perfected into its true purpose. But in order for this to happen, the old ways must disappear. Therefore, Paul tells us, now in saying a new, he hath made the former old, and that which decayeth and groweth old is near its end. The former indeed had also justifications of divine services and a sanctuary. So as opposed to the sacramental heavenly justifications, and divine services Jesus established in the Catholic Church, the body of Christ, with Christ as head of the body and mediator of not just prayer, the entire new covenant, including as our high priest, mediator of the divine services through his body. So the prophet Isaiah cried out, Whom hast thou reproach, and whom hast thou blasphemed, and against whom hast thou exalted thy voice and lifted up thy eyes on high? against the Holy One of Israel. So if we go back to Matthew, referring to Rachel weeping, Jacob who married Rachel is Israel, and yet Jesus is the true Israel who married a Gentile bride. So Rachel's the mother of Israel, and Christ as the true Israel went to the cross so the entire nation of Israel would be spared from death. When Matthew refers to Rachel crying for her children, we know that this is the entire nation of Israel by physical genealogy. When we hear the prophet cry out, Israel has not known me, they blaspheme the Holy One of Israel. We understand that Israel does not know the Christ, the Messiah, and only understood the physical land and the, and the people, not the spiritual reality. They look for an earthly king. The true Israel stood before the Pharisees, and they did not see him. We will see... Matthew and Matthew 29 show us that Jesus said exactly that. And Jesus answering them said to them, you err not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. So Protestantism is in the same boat. The Pharisees could not see the Holy One of Israel before them, just like Protestants can't see the Christ in the Eucharist. So Christ is closer to his true nature 
natural presence in all of the tabernacles of the world than he was in an unglorified flesh. Yeah, and the metaphor here is it's to start. It's, it's as if Rachel's cries reverberate through time from the past forward and from the present backwards. And this is also time to talk about the multiple layers of interpretation. Matthew applies Rachel's grief to the slaughter of the innocents by Herod, but how could we have failed to apply it to the larger rejection of God, the struggle against evil, and even to the modern cost of abortion? So we see a lot of these proof texts that we use that have multiple interpretations. They're not interpreted just once and in one sense. They have multiple meanings and multiple layers of interpretation through time. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's, it's pretty amazing when when uh, you you see through that seamless fabric, and when you're drawn into it, you know, uh, by living the sacramental life. It is so difficult to see this outside of obedience to the faith in the sacramental life, though. Yeah, it's impossible. Yeah. It's, it's really impossible. Yeah. So Matthew shows us that Jesus begins ministry in the Capernaum area. Capernaum is located on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee in northern Israel. Jesus was born in Bethlehem and grew up in Nazareth. But uh, people rejected him, so he traveled to Capernaum. And uh, this, this is why, I guess, Jesus said in, in, in Luke 4.24, Amen, I say to you that no prophet is accepted in his own country. So Jesus chose the 12 apostles while in this area of Galilee. All the apostles were from this area except Judas. Uh, Herod Antipas was, uh, ruled the, the, the Galilee area. So in following the mystery, Jesus... Uh, just like Jesus taught us uh, when on the cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which leads us to look at the whole psalm, which culminates with, I will declare my name in a great church, talking about a people not yet born. That's the, the Catholic church. That's that's the Gentiles baptized into the church, becoming the spiritual family of God. We should continue where Matthew left off. So a few verses later, after Isaiah talks about seeing a great light, he writes, A child is born to us, and a son is given us, and the government is upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, God, the Mighty, the Father of the world to come, the Prince of Peace. His empire uh, shall be multiplied, and there shall be no end of peace. He shall sit upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to establish it and strengthen it with judgment and with justice from henceforth and forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So again, Matthew is leading us to the divinity of Jesus, born in the flesh, who will rule over the kingdom of David. But Matthew shows us that God was beginning his ministry on earth, teaching of the kingdom he was establishing. So notice that in this kingdom, there will, there will still be judgment and justice. Isaiah wrote to establish it and strengthen it with judgment and with justice. So this doesn't sound like the heaven above. This brings to mind another prophecy of the marriage between Jesus and his church that we find it in Hosea uh, 2. And I will espouse thee to me forever, and I will espouse thee to me in justice 
and judgment and in mercy and in commiserations, and thou espouse thee to me in faith, and thou shalt know that I am the Lord, farther down we read, and I will sow her unto me in the earth, and I will have mercy on her that was without mercy, and to say to that which was not my people, thou art my people, and they shall say, thou art my God. So if we follow the verse uh, that uh, Matthew gives us an introduction to, we get the whole image of the Gentiles coming into the church. So this is new people of God, which is clearly the Gentile church with a remnant of Israel, is a spouse to Christ in justice, judgment, and mercy, because the kingdom of heaven is not the heaven above. Those who are born again into the kingdom of heaven are baptized into the Catholic church. Yeah, and I'm not wanting to jump ahead too much, but Capernaum is a city that we will see quite a lot in Matthew's Gospel, along with the cities of Bethsaida and Corzon, and not in a good way. He he even says that those cities will be go, will go down to the netherworld, and they will be judged worse than the cities of Tyre and Sidon. And there's more than one tradition in the Catholic Church, believe it or not, that ties these cities to the birth, the raising, and the rise of the power of the Antichrist, that he would be born in uh, Capernaum, raised in Bethsaida, in the power of Corazon. Uh, one of the examples, of, uh, two of the examples of uh, were Augustine and Jerome. You just broke up there, just about four words back. Uh, two of the church fathers who suggested this were Augustine and Jerome. Yeah, it's fascinating. Really. Yeah. So, Matthew four seventeen. Uh, from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, "Do penance, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." For a Protestant friends. Protestant is, uh, uh, you know, I, I have to be honest because, you know, uh, this is the way I see things. Protestant is a construct created by man to separate him from the Catholic Church. This is very blunt, I know, but one of the greatest expressions of love is, is to lead one from falsehood to truth. So when Jesus said from the cross, uh, said, it is finished, do you fall to conjecture trying to say that, what he meant was the establishment of eternal security. Did he explain what he meant? Uh, well, we can agree that he didn't. You know, he didn't explain what he meant. So we're falling into conjecture with this. So using these words, it is finished, part of the Protestant construct created by man and fallen nature to keep him from the Catholic Church. While Protestants cry out against Catholic tradition, they have created an entire body of tradition of false exegesis and see scripture through this tradition. Could Jesus have said it is finished because he put in place everything he needed to while in the flesh to establish his sacramental kingdom on earth that would be united to the heavenly church? Could he have said it is finished because he did everything he needed to in the flesh, as the true Moses establishing the true exodus of baptism and the true Passover for the general redemption of the world. Right. And again, not 
not trying to jump too far ahead, but in chapter 16, we see Jesus say that his kingdom will have the keys, his kingdom will bind and loose, hell shall not prevail against his kingdom, and many standing there in his presence would see him come into the power in his kingdom before they taste of death. So I don't know how that leaves room for a man-made punishment, as you put it, 16 centuries later. Yeah, I really can't. And the soul of scripture is so damaging. You know, that that's why I that's why I try to get Protestants just to look at the reason of the of this statement or this question. Show me a verse that you think proves scripture alone. Show me your exegesis of that verse and how it doesn't contradict the hundreds of verses showing an authoritative church. It's impossible. So Let's move on in chapter 4. Let's go to Matthew uh, 4:18 through 22. And it reads, And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith to them, Come ye after me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they immediately, leaving their nets, followed him, and going on from thence, he saw other uh, two brothers, James, uh, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in a ship with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them, and they forthwith left their nets and father and followed him. Now, followed him or became his students, and he became their rabbi is, is, is probably more proper. But so Jesus as Israel and king is establishing the mustard seed of his court and reestablishing his kingdom. He is also beginning to establish his precepts, the law of the kingdom. In Matthew's gospel, the very first mention of the apostles mentions Simon first, addressing him as the rock. And look at the imagery. Peter and his brother Andrew were in Peter's boat, and in the typology here, we understand that Noah's Ark is a type for the church, and Peter's boat is a type for the church. And through Peter, this boat will fish for men. This is known as the Bark of Peter. Uh, a fascinating bit of trivia, the central part of the churches are called the nave, which comes from the Latin word for ship. So, In fact, most Catholic churches are designed so that the layout places the priest at the altar in the attitude of the captain of a ship. So the orientation is 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 of a ship. Yeah, it's amazing. So first Peter three eighteen, we could further confirm this imagery. Uh Peter wrote because Christ also died once for our sins, the just for the unjust, that he may offer us to God being put to death indeed in the flesh, but enlivened in the spirit in which also coming, he preached to those spirits that were in prison, which had been sometime incredulous when they waited for the patience of God in the days of Noah, when the ark was a building wherein a few, that is eight souls, were saved by water, wherein unto baptism being the like form now saveth you also. Again, the parallels and the typology scripture itself leads us into. They were saved by entering the ark the bark of Peter, the church through baptism into the body of Christ, the kingdom of heaven. 
speaking in the kingdom of heaven, let's read the last section of Matthew 4. Uh, let's look at Matthew 4, 23 and 25. So, and Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and every infirmity among the people. And his fame went throughout all Syria. And they presented to him all sick people that were taken with diverse diseases and torments, and such as were possessed by devils and lunatics and those that had palsy, and he cured them. And much uh, people followed him from Galilee and from the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and from Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Last week we talked about how Jeremiah 33, uh, for those who did not listen to this last week's show, Let's compare Matthew 4, 24, 25, and see the parallel between Jeremiah 33. Matthew showed us through the prophecy that Jesus is the God King of the kingdom of David. And here he's showing us the Hebrew church as further proof that he would perform incredible miracles. But in addition to being the king, Jeremiah also shows us how the king is a bridegroom. So we're also looking for, in the Gospel of Matthew, a marriage between God and the spiritual Israel to come. So we'll start at uh, Jeremiah 33.10. This is what the Lord says, you say about this place, it is desolate waste without people or animals. Yet in the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are deserted, inhabited by neither people nor animals, there will be heard once more the sound of joy and gladness, the voices of the bride and bridegroom, and the voices of uh, who bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord, saying, Give thanks to the Lord Almighty, for the Lord is good. His love endures forever. For I will restore the fortunes of the land as they were before, says the Lord. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called, the Lord, a righteous, the Lord, a righteous Savior. For this is what the Lord says. David will never fail to have a man to sit on the throne of Israel, nor will Levitical priests ever fail to have a man to stand before me continually to offer burnt sacrifices, to burn grain offerings, the present sacrifices. So after Matthew shows us that Jesus is God through the Old Testament prophecy, reestablishes kingdom, he shows us that Jesus is only doing things that only God can do, and Jesus is the bridegroom of the Davidic kingdom. And if we look closely, inside the kingdom there will be a thank offering, a sacrifice of thanksgiving, or in Greek, a sacrifice of Eucharist. You see the Eucharist as a thank offering for the sin offering of the cross. Right. And, and I don't know if it's even sufficient to say that Jesus reestablishes his kingdom because that could be interpreted the wrong way as, as that he is restoring the former glory of the nation of Israel. And that's I a, think that's, that's, that's what a it, good uh, clarification. Yeah, and I, and I think... Go ahead with it. I think that's why the crucifixion was such a shock, because it seemed like a failure. It seemed like a failure because they didn't understand the mission. And I think we have the same thing going on today with all of these end times people, end times types, uh, that have never understood that God is always on 
unfolding his plan over time. It's always something newer, bigger, better. There are those who, be, who believe in the Davidic kingdom, the temple, the nation of Israel, and even the Sabbath as ends, but they never were ends. They were not the ends, but only shadows of the ends. And the Judaizers certainly didn't get this, and in many ways I think we still don't. Uh, this is not just true in the large form, but in the small little fits and groans in our own lives that frighten and disturb us so much, even the little traffic jam that made you late for work this morning fits into God's plans in ways that we can't understand. So I have to imagine that Matthew felt like this was a concept that was almost impossible to convey because scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day were so set in their ways, they were so confident that they knew everything and understood everything, and God was doing a new and different thing that they could not have even comprehended. Yeah, uh, definitely. And, uh, you know, like Catholics always say, we move from type to heavenly reality. So uh, how we, we understand the heavenly realities through the types. And in the type is the physical kingdom of David. In the heavenly reality is the sacramental kingdom that through the Eucharist unites us you know, to heaven. And so it's not simply this body of believers. When Paul talks about those who partake of the one bread are part of the one body, this is not a metaphor. This is a heavenly reality. And if we're the body with Christ as the head of the body, then in this spiritual reality, it is not uh, the priest who baptizes, but Christ who baptizes through the priest. Right. It's not the priest who uh, absolves sins. It's Christ who absolves sins. It's not the priest who, you know, uh, consecrates the Eucharist. It's it's the Holy Spirit who consecrates the Eucharist. And so on and on, it's uh, Christ is ever present working inside the church. So it's not simply a, you know, a group of people. Uh, it is Christ as the body in, mm -hmm. in, in, in the church itself. And, and yet, despite all of this, what I see operating in the world today, Luke, is a world falling further and further into unbelief, disbelief. And I see that in two different ways. I see the honest unbelievers who are unbelievers and say they're unbelievers. And then I see the un unbelievers who profess to be, be believers, or as Paul said to Timothy, those who make a pretense of religion and deny its power. And you see more and more and more and more today Christians who are just denying essential doctrines of Christianity, like the Incarnation. Christians that say, well, Mary couldn't have given birth to God, or God couldn't have died on the cross. Well, they're denying the basic bedrock foundation of the Christian faith, and yet calling themselves Christians. And we see this more and more and more. And we even see a crumbling and a splintering within those who call themselves Catholics. Now, they're, they're not actually Catholics uh, in communion with the church and promote abortion or deny the real presence in the Eucharist. But we see a lot of this splintering. We see a lot of this falling back in the, in the, in the disbelief. And that's why I think focusing on a, 
on a book like Matthew is important for us to bring it back to the fore and say, okay, this is what it says. This is what the book says. This is what we're supposed to believe. This is the foundation of our faith. Yeah, definitely. And this is why when I talk to Protestants sometimes, I say, uh, okay, show me people by living by your image of faith from a 100 AD until 1300 AD. So are you saying Christianity didn't exist? Name some Christians during that time period. And the thing is, the 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 way this devolution, uh, you know, the the uh, the damage it's done, is to the point where Calvin and Luther would not even recognize the modern Christianity as Christianity. Right. <clears throat> I know that's harsh, but that's that's the reality. If you look at Calvin, Calvin is basically saying that, you know, you're not going to get to heaven without the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. So his idea of of predestination or election, what people don't realize is Calvin is saying you're not going to get to heaven pre- because you're not predestined into the church where you receive the Eucharist. So that's that's a million miles away from even modern Calvinism. Right. So, yep. and and if you look at the disciples, the apostles, you know, the the Protestants is not just different. It's like a, it's on a different planet. It's worlds away. In it's fact, not even close. In mm-hmm. fact, Luke, to emphasize your point, you have Protestants today that have gone so far away from the dictates of what Protestantism was founded on that they don't even want to call themselves Protestants. They'll protest at the title that they're a Protestant, and yet they'll they'll say they believe in sola scriptura, they believe in the King James Bible. Oh, but I'm not a Protestant. <laughs> so they they don't even accept the title that describes what they are. So it's like um, everybody's a non-denominational nowadays. That's that's the that's the latest thing. They don't even want to accept. Uh, the labels because there's so much splintering between the denominations and the subdenominations and the sub 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 denominations that no one wants to allow themselves to be placed in even the smallest of groups. Everyone is an island. Uh, you're a Protestant if you don't participate in the true Passover for the world, the general redemption of the world with the hosts of heavens. With the churches yeah. of apostolic succession, period. Yeah. Words mean things, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, Matthew 5. So, Matthew takes us to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus teaches a, a radical change from how people lived in general. And look back and look at the world before Christ here. We discussed this a little bit in, uh, in, our, in, in Matthew 1 and 2, but... Uh, we need to reemphasize, you know, what was going on, what the world was like, you know, before Christ and how it was developing with Christ. So before Christ, you had a ruthless pagan world where you had things like the Code of Hammurabi, which were eye and tooth for tooth. Uh, literally, it was, it was a law of substitution. Uh, you had the letter of Mosaic law, a rule, fear and temporal punishment for, for Jews only. Uh, this also included a harsh penalty such as stoning, and you wonder why God would do such a thing. Well, this law was given to tame a stiff-necked people, 
Paul called law pedagogy, which is a strict schoolmaster for a child. So it was given because the Israelites were influenced by 400 years in Egypt. And as we have discussed earlier, Egypt is also a symbol for sin. So before Jesus, the world was much different, even on a subconscious level. They just, they just thought different in, in general. So there was something missing. There was a void in the thinking process. So also Satan's demons were everywhere. Every, everywhere you hear of uh, demoniacs uh, in just about every culture. So, But through time, there was also a stream, a belief in a time when things would change. Uh, hope of a better world. Uh, the prophets foretold the Messiah in a time where the law be written on our hearts, where through this change in consciousness, everyone would know God from infant to old age, uh, Jews and Gentiles. Of course, they began this uh, began to be the reality when Christ came into the world, and a new higher conscious began to spread throughout the world. Uh, it is sad that now in our world we, we see a reversal of the process almost because we're beginning to separate from moral and natural law. You know, the, the liberalism is, is just destroying people that way, and they're, you know, they start by going against their own conscience that God established through grace. So this process is people separate their minds from the moral and natural law. So back, uh, back on track here. Uh, it is this new conscience at the beginning of this new conscience was when the New Testament was written by the first members of the Universal Church. And it was a radical change that created the New Testament. So Jesus begins by referring to the coming of the kingdom, showing to us who are blessed before God in the kingdom. Some of this discourse can be applied on an individual basis, but it also uh, it's instructive to the church on a whole. Is from the beginning, uh, the church took up as being Christ on earth for the world in its process of, of changing the pagan world to Christianity. So if you look across the world where the apostles and their disciples evangelized, the world went from paganism to Catholicism. And Protestantism, of course, came way later when some European countries went from Catholic to Protestantism. So this new charity expressed by Christ in the Beatitudes would also be beneficial to spread the faith in ecumenicalism. God's a logical God. So let's read the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall possess the land. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after justice, for they shall have their fill. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the clean of heart, they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Blessed are they that suffer persecution for justice' sake. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus then shows us how those in the kingdom will be persecuted for living in the kingdom. Blessed are ye when they shall revile you and persecute you and speak all that is evil against you. Truly for my sake, be glad and rejoice for reward is very great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets that were before you. I mean, could, could you imagine this world before the law of conscience was established through that grace given freely, hearing these things? I mean, well, uh, I mean it, look, this is my response. This chapter right here is my response to people who say, well, you know, you believe in a 
man-made religion that, you know, men made up to, you know, feel better about themselves or, or to advance their own agenda. This sounds like it's written by a crazy person. What man <laughs> exactly. Well, for that time and age, yes. I mean, I really don't think many people really internalize the Beatitudes. Uh, you know, it's just some wise stuff that Jesus said. But imagine that I say to the average American, the average American today, that they must embrace the spirit of poverty. Not too many Americans that are going to sign up for that. A spirit of acquiescence to others. Uh, I don't know many Americans that are going to be on board with that. A spirit of grief, a spirit of equality and fairness and social justice, an unwillingness to punish those who offend you, a disdain for profanity, a willingness to try and make peace between warring factions, and a willingness to suffer, be mocked, and persecuted, even if necessary, to death. How many Americans do you know that would sign up for that? Well, in my exactly. view, and saying some pointed things, now I'm going to say something pointed because this is why Protestantism was created. It's created as a way to have Christ without all this unpleasant stuff. And Matthew makes it clear it's a package deal. Uh, and the other gospels make it clear it's a package deal. Who would be my disciple must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So you can't have Jesus And the words of Christ are the will of the Father. Amen. So Matthew goes on and shows us how Jesus expressed that this kingdom will, will change the world as we know it, basically. Uh, the kingdom is not of the world that believes an eye for an eye, but this kingdom is an expression of God's love on earth as the mystical body. And Jesus has no hands now but ours, no mouth to speak uh, through but ours. That beautiful song by John Michael Talbot. Uh, so Jesus goes on, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its savor, savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is a good for nothing anymore, but it casts out and to be trodden on men. You are the light of the world, a city on a mountain cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but beyond upon a candlestick, that it may shine to all that are in the house. Let your light shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So first, he's showing us that we, we could have this zeal, we could have this love, but we could also lose it. And therefore, also in line with the teaching of Christ, Paul says, and I live now. Uh, and I live, now not I, but Christ liveth in me, and that I live now in the flesh, I live in the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and delivered himself for me. And uh, Paul says this in Galatians 2.20. And, and I think this is made clearest in where Matthew quotes John and Jesus both uh, in this imagery of the tree and its fruit, and how the tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Our, our Protestant friends see salvation as both a first act and a final act, whereas we see the full plan from seed to sapling to mighty oak. It's a process. Transformation, growing in transformation. Yeah. 
So we see a radical transformation that comes from this prophecy being fulfilled through Christ. Uh, to me, though, Jesus is not saying these things as something that people were generally capable of at the time he was saying them. Israel is known as a stiff-necked people, but he's saying these things about what would be capable of after we established in our hearts the love of the gift of the cross and the grace given freely of the prophecy fulfilled of the laws written on our hearts that the Holy Spirit began to spread throughout the world. So uh, as prophecy that Jeremiah wrote, this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it on their hearts and it will be their God and they shall be my people. But again, we also, when we look at these scriptures, we have to look at the spiritual nature and we understand that Jesus being the true Israel, he, he, he substituted himself to the cross and then married a Gentile bride, creating the spiritual Israel. So this refers to the spiritual Israel. And to an extent, of course, it refers to the, to, to the world in general. But we actually raise, as Christians, we, we raise these laws written in our heart much higher. Uh, and Paul, uh, Paul said the same in the church in Hebrews 10, 16 uh, uh, about this. So this is where Paul is going when in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, he writes that we are saved by grace through faith, not work that anyone should boast. I mean, this is just a textbook uh uh, you know, verse for for Protestants trying to talk, mm-hmm. you know go against the Catholic Church, but they get it completely wrong. And just about everywhere that they get it wrong, the verse actually accuses them when you put it place it in proper context. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'll show you the laws written in our hearts that we raise the Beatitudes through the Holy Spirit in love of the gift of the cross is grace given freely. All the sacraments are grace given freely. The apostles were Jews who never understood, understood belief outside of obedience to the faith in a covenant relationship with God. Therefore, Paul says, referring to the new covenant, that it is his job to bring about obedience to the faith, obedience to the new laws of the new Moses. So the, the baptized Pharisees in the church, known as Judaizers, were boasting about keeping the Jewish ritual law of works, believing they were closer to God than the Gentiles in the church were, because they kept this law of works. And, of course, in the next verse, which is often left out by our Protestant friends, we read, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus in good works, which God hath prepared that we should walk in them. And, wow, he, he really prepared us for it. He changed man's souls at the subconscious level, even. So this is showing the law written on our hearts through grace, hesed, God's steadfast love, fulfilling prophecy. And through this state of being, we are not performing works of our own, only God is good. But in transforming grace through the humility of a humble heart, we are his workmanship created in good works. And Paul further further refers to this time of transformation of man uh, by the law being written on our hearts among the Gentiles in the church, when he wrote, Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciousness also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, and at other times even defending them. 
This will take place on the day when the God judges people's secrets through, the, through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. So Gentiles here, is this is a new thing where they're receiving the law on their consciousness instead of a code of Hammurabi. It's not faith good, law bad. It's obedience to faith and a process of transforming grace, which through in the love of Christ, we can live as Christians in the law perfected. And since Paul is no longer under the law uh, of rule, fear, and temporal punishment, and the second legislation, uh, he's no longer under the pedagogy. He says, For whereas I was free to all, and made myself a servant of all, that I might gain the more, and I became to the Jews a Jew, that I might gain the Jews, to them that are under the law, as if I were under the law. Whereas myself was not under the law, that I might gain them that were under the law, to them that were without the law, as if I were without the law. Wherefore, I was not without the law of God, but was in the law of Christ. Uh, he puts that together pretty well. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, this Ephesians chapter 2 that you talked about, because very recently I was talking to some friends of mine who are Protestants, and, and uh, we've been good friends for a long, long time, but we get in discussions like this. And I just asked them, bring it down. I said, uh, well, let's talk simple sentence structure. If I said that um, I did a radio program with Luke and he really had some great things to say, well, what would he be referring to? Obviously, he would refer to Luke. If I was saying that I went out to fly a kite and it was a windy day and it got stuck in the tree, Obviously, it refers to the kite. You wouldn't say it refers to flying. You would say it refers to the kite. When you look at this sentence, their interpretation, their breakdown of this sentence doesn't even make any grammatical sense. When when you say, for by grace you have been saved, it is a free gift. Well, they're applying it to salvation. That's like applying it to the wind that got the kite stuck in the tree. It yeah, exactly. obviously refers to the subject of the sentence, which is what? And I and I got my Protestant friends after a few badgering, I got them to admit it refers to grace. Okay? So now we've established that grace is a free gift from God. Well, how do we receive it? Well, we receive it through the sacraments. But there's nothing that we can do to earn grace. There's nothing that we can do to merit grace. Okay? It is a free gift, however. That doesn't mean that we're not supposed to do something with that grace. We receive grace. Okay? So grace is the means by which we're saved. Through faith, faith is the process by which we receive it. And what is it for? For the good works which are prepared for us. So we receive, so we are saved by grace through faith for good works. And, you know, we're going to jump ahead again. We're going to see this later on. There's one chapter in particular in Matthew's Gospel where we see this. 
start to finish, we see three uh, successive parables in this one chapter that show this. And one of them is the parable of the talent. I'll just mention that very quickly. The person who has five talents goes out and makes five more. The person who is given two talents goes out and makes two more. Now, notice it says, Luke, he was given the talents. He didn't earn them. He didn't uh, do anything worthy of receiving the talents. He was given them. They were a free gift. However, that doesn't mean the master didn't hold him accountable for uh, for multiplying that. And it's mind-boggling to me that when you think about it, that Jesus wants to work his will through somebody like me. <laughs> That's a mystery to me because I'm going to tell you, I'm the last person that I would put in charge of my life if I had any say in it. <laughs> I just, but says to Paul, my strength is manifested through your weakness. Think about that. That's a mind-boggling statement. My strength is manifested through your weakness. But isn't this the pattern that we see all through Scripture, Luke? It, it, it says yeah, that Moses and, and, was the, and its foundation is humility. Yeah, Moses was the meekest man on earth. So God, who has a wonderful sense of humor, sends Moses in to square off with Pharaoh. All right, Peter was a was a a fisherman. He was nobody of 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 high means. Okay, David couldn't even wear the armor. <laughs> that they had for him. Couldn't even wear it. Okay? Yet they sent him in to go in and, and, and slay the uh, slay the um the giant. Yeah. So it just goes to show that God works through weak vessels. Well, that gives me a lot of hope. I gotta be honest with you. Cause, um but that's the way God works. We are his workmanship to do the good works that he has prepared for us. So I asked my Protestant friends this question. They really couldn't give me a good answer. If God commands us to do something and gives us the ability to do it, what possible excuse could we make for not accomplishing the task? What possible defense are we going to have? I gave, I commanded you to do the act, gave you everything that you needed in order to do the act, and yet you did not. Well, it's going to be that uh, that lazy servant who took his talent, buried it in the ground, and got thrown into the outer darkness where there's wailing and gnashing of teeth, which is a place that none of us want to go. He commanded the mass, do this in memory of me, which Paul refers to when he says, for as often as we shall eat this bread and drink this cup, we will show the death of the Lord until he comes again. So do this in memory of me, a nominesis in the Greek, which is offer this memorial sacrifice. What Paul is referring to is a memorial sacrifice that the Father sees until the end of time. And, of course, the priest partakes of the altar, as Paul described. You know, Paul gave us... Uh, uh, you know, kind of hints into this when he says, Behold, Israel, according to flesh, are not those who offer the sacrifice partakers of the altar. We have an altar at which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat of. This is the altar from which 
the Eucharist is presented to the Father and then eaten. And then the other thing that he commanded us is that we have to take up our crosses. And when we hear this idea of of sola fide, this idea of salvation by faith alone, uh, well, (laughs) that didn't work out very well for the early church. It certainly didn't work out very well for the apostles. Uh, They they didn't accept Jesus and then go straight to heaven. Uh, Every one of them had to had to prove their 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 just I invite people to read up on the deaths of some of the martyrs, of some of the apostles, and and some of the early, um, yeah, not just the apostles, but 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 people like Philomena and and Cecilia, Saint Cecilia, and Saint Catherine, and Saint Lawrence, and I mean these people died unspeakable, horrific deaths. Joan of Arc, I mean. Um, I don't think any of those people thought to uh, say one. Yeah, I just look across Butler's lives of the saints. I mean, uh, and when they went to their trials, they were asked about the Eucharist being being the true uh, uh, Christ. There, and the priests uh, went to their death, refusing to, to stop celebrating the Holy Mass. And many of them were caught up, and uh, as soon as they were caught with Scripture. So it was the Catholic Church, uh, members of the Catholic Church who went to their deaths protecting the scriptures. So it is the blood of the Catholic martyrs that is the mortar for the church. And it was building this church, you know, over a thousand years before Protestant began, protesting began. You you know who Chuck Colson was? No. Uh, Chuck Colson was involved in the... uh... In the Nixon cover-up, the 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 Watergate break-in and and the crimes that uh, eventually led to the uh, you know resignation of, of Richard Nixon, and he ended up going to prison. He was one of the people that went to prison, and he said that it taught him the truth of Christianity. You know, when he was pressed about, it, he said, well, "What do you mean?" Well, he said, "Look, I saw forty people." absolutely tuck tail and run, turn on each other on a dime because they were facing 10 years in prison. Nobody uh, was willing to, to, to stick to their story when they thought it could cost them 10 years in prison. And yet we're to believe these early apostles, these early church leaders created uh, a lie defended that lie so much that they were willing to face lions and, and, and be flayed alive and be dragged through the streets and, and, and burnt alive and all these horrible things for a lie? No. No way. No chance. These people no, believed uh, yeah, these people believed what they professed. Yeah, and that there was no faith alone, scripture alone, born again without baptism, once they've always said people there who went to their deaths. They were all Catholics. They all lived the Catholic right. faith. Yeah. And so, we may very well be headed that way again. Yeah, quite possible. Quite possible. So, uh, to, to, to go further and, and to further clarify this image of this, of this works of the law, boast of the law, uh, and uh, 
you know, for our Protestant brothers, uh, Paul, when he said, when he talked about charity, this is not the law of works for Jews only. When he talked about the religion and ritual of the new covenant, this is not the law of Jews only. You know, uh, when he talked about obedience to the faith, this is not the law of, of, of works for Jews only. There's only one type of work that Paul, you know, says we're not responsible for. And it was this boast of, 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 the, of, the, of the Judaizers, the baptized Pharisees, the same people who Jude was referring to in Jude 1 as have gone in the way of Korah. And Korah challenged the authority of Moses. So God opened up the ground and, and, uh, and they, a bunch of them fell into the ground and into fire. So the example is the challenging of the authority of the church. Uh, so let's look at this law and, and get a little more detail in, in exactly what's going on. So we can place this in the mind because this is the only works Paul was saying that, uh, you know, the Christians were not responsible for. Also, early Christians showed us how God removed the second legislation, which was the boast of the Judaizers, because through baptism into the body of Christ, God took us all into the gospel of freedom and unconditional love. So we find reference to the second legislation of the Mosaic Law, which was given after the uh, Israelites uh, were given the Ten Commandments, and immediately they went and 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 uh, worshipped the golden calf. So at that time, the curse should have been enacted, and it was held in abeyance due to the, the promise to Abraham. So we find reference to the second legislation, the Discalia. It's, it's written or added to around 230 AD. Many of the ancient documents are hard to date because of additions written at later times. And so we read, him they denied and said, we have no God to go before us. And they made them a molten calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to a graven image. Therefore, the Lord was angry and in his, in his hot anger, yet with the mercy of his goodness, he bound them with the second legislation and laid heavy burdens upon them, upon their neck. And he says, now no longer, if thou shalt make as formerly, but he said, make an altar and sacrifice continuously as though he had need of these things. And continual burnt offerings with a necessity and cause them to abstain from meats by means of distinction of meats. For from that time where animals discern and clean and unclean flesh, from that time where separations and purifications and baptism and sprinklings, from that time where sacrifices and offerings and table, from that time where offerings and oblations, the showbread and the offering and the sacrifices, the firstlings and redemptions and he goes for sin and vows and many other things marvelous. For because of manifold sins, there were laid upon them the customs unspeakable, but by none of them did they abide, but they again provoked the Lord. For the second legislation was imposed for the making of the calf and for idolatry. But you through baptism have been set free from idolatry and from the second legislation, which was imposed on account of idols. For in the gospel, he renewed and fulfilled and affirmed the law. But the second legislation, he abolished. So the gospel affirmed the law of unconditional love that came through the law written on our hearts, raised to the Beatitudes through the love of the cross. Release the Jews from the second legislation through the cross. 
them into the body of Christ. They don't understand that. They don't get that because they want to play this little equivocation game that words always mean the same thing. So, so if works means one thing in one reference, then it means the same thing in another reference. Well, there's different words in the Bible that mean kill, that are translated to the English word kill. And, you know, there's an old joke that goes around among uh, among Protestantism that, well, you know, the King James Bible was good enough for Jesus and the apostles. It's good enough for me. But they, <laughs> the they, Francis they almost, Bacon Bible. <laughs> They almost act that way. I mean, uh, so Paul is very clearly making a distinction uh, between these these works that were nothing more than going through the motions, these works by which the Judaizers were boasting, and the works that spring from grace, that spring from a true love of Christ, works that are inspired by charity. There's no there's no comparison between the two because uh, one is the motive is to show everyone how wonderful I am and the second is the motive is to show everyone how wonderful God is and uh, and Paul and James were both contrasting between the two and yet this this message is clear contrast is completely lost on our Protestant brothers and sisters and it's just as clear as the contrast between the temple that took 46 years to build and the temple that was standing right in front of them. They don't get the idea that the works of the law were all pointing forward to something bigger, better. God was always making yeah. something new, something bigger, something better. And the Old Testament law, the Old Testament as you said, they were a punishment. They were um, a remedy to a stiff-necked people, but they were also pointing forward to the one perfect sacrifice. I, you know, I told this to a friend of mine who was an atheist. was killing in the Old Testament and everything. God had to impress upon man the awful price of sin. You pro- just broke up last last three sentences. God had to impress upon man the awful cost of sin. Find some way to impress upon us the awful cost of sin. Um, and boy, do we see that fulfilled in the in the in the suffering and death of Jesus Christ? We saw in vivid three D the awful price of sin. Sin is still separation from God, but and you, you separate further and further from God through more sin. But uh, you're still, you know, in the grace of God unless it's mortal sin. And then there's no way out of that except through inside the mystical body of Christ, confession to a priest, because that confession is uh, is established and it is conferred by Christ. Right. So this is the beginning of the fulfillment of the law as God told us uh, as we move on to Matthew 5:17 and 18 which is a great segue uh, for what we were just talking about. Jesus says, "Do not think that 
I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I have not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For amen, amen, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass one jot and one title shall not pass of the law till all be fulfilled. He therefore that shall break one of these least commandments and shall so teach men shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Do and teach, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So here we see a rabbinic expression, which means to confirm or establish the law uh, by putting it on a better footing, a better exegesis of what the deeper purpose of the law is for. So in the old covenant, God gave the law to lead to grace. In the new covenant, God gave grace to fulfill the law of unconditional love. And Paul when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. We see now through a glass in a dark manner, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know even as I am known. And now there remain faith, hope, and charity, and greatest of these is charity. But to the Galatians, Paul called the letter of Mosaic law pedagogy which is a strict schoolmaster for a child. So Paul is saying, in a way, he put away Mosaic law. He put away the pedagogy, the strict schoolmaster, and he chose charity, which in its purest and most simplest definition is being Christ to man and agape. So again, uh, I will emphasize that the, the, the heaven being referred to even here in the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is a heaven that passes away the heaven of the sacramental reality of the church, uh, the part that's on earth. Yet the church in the reestablished kingdom of David is also on a pilgrim's journey to its fulfillment at the end of time to an eternal state. Therefore, Paul says, we see now through a glass in a dark manner, but then face to face, now I know in part, but then I shall know even as I am known. And now there remain faith, hope, and charity, and the greatest of these is charity. So Paul sums this up as the love of our neighbor worketh no evil, therefore is the fulfilling of the law. Yeah, so Paul is Paul is basically taking the Sermon on the Mount and basically extrapolating it. Or or he's taking what Jesus said was the greatest command. Uh, Mark chapter 12 to love the, the Lord thy God with thy whole heart, thy whole mind, the whole soul. Heard that somewhere before. Um, <laughs> you love your neighbor, love your neighbor as yourself. And Paul is now extrapolating on that. Extrapolating that that is that is the Christian faith in a nutshell. That is what it means to be a true believer. So. This is the distinction that that Paul is making. But in that love, in that truth, you have to love God to the point where you follow truth where it leads. And God gave us the ability to, to do that. And that truth, if you look at what Paul talked about, said obedience to the faith, leads to the religion and ritual of the new covenant as doing the will of the Father, in addition to that love. So, amen. back to Matthew. Go ahead. I said amen. <laughs> okay. So, back to Matthew 5. 
Jesus then goes on and shows us the difference between the letter of the law and the law of holiness and love, which confirms what uh, above, Matthew 5, 21 and 22. You have heard that it was said to them of old, thou shalt not kill, and whoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry, angry with his brother shall be in danger of judgment. You have heard that it was said of them of old, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever shall look at a woman in lust after her uh, already committed adultery in his heart. Jesus goes on and showing this radical transformation from eye, from eye uh, for an eye, from the Jewish law of rule, fear, and temporal punishment. And he just, just he explodes uh, this with, with love. He takes those commandments and he, and he uh, basically transforms them into – he goes on and showing this radical transformation to loving your enemies. The Jews even thought of Gentiles as completely separate from God and unclean. So you, you can't establish a more radical change among them. Uh, remember Jesus preaching from an area that is half Gentile and half Jew. So looking at uh, possible spiritual parallelism here, you can picture this uh, mount as Mount Zion beginning to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah says that many people shall go and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways and we will walk in his paths. For the law shall come forth from Zion and the word of the Lord uh, from Jerusalem. And the church as Israel perpetuates the wisdom, starting with Jesus and the apostles until the end of time. Therefore, Paul writes, but if I tarry long that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. Therefore, Paul tells us those in the kingdom of heaven, you have come to Mount Zion to the new Jerusalem. And because the church is Mount Zion, he tells us that it is the church that even teaches the angels when he wrote that the manifold wisdom of God may be known to the principalities and powers in heavenly places through the church. And Jesus tells the church, behold, I will be with you always, even until the consummation of the world. So this is from the beginning, this church that lives by this one faith, one doctrine until the end of time. And yet, he chose 12 misfits <laughs> to implement this church. <laughs> it's mind-boggling. I, yeah. I mean, you think yeah. about this. If you were going to construct an institution that was to stand for 2,000 years, you would think that you'd choose the best and the brightest that you could. You'd find the best architects and the best engineers and the most learned people and and that's not what Jesus did. He took 12 misfits and 12 people who were, you take the, the writer of this gospel, a tax collector. They were the most reviled, some of the most reviled people of the time. Um, they were lumped in the conversation with prostitutes, <laughs> tax collectors and prostitutes. How many times do you see that uh, phrase together? Uh, and yet yes. we're taking we're taking this tax collector, and Jesus appoints him to educate us about 
the Messiah. It's just, <laughs> it's absolutely, I, again, when I talk about, you know, when I rail against atheists, no human being could create a story like this. It's too absurd. It's too yeah, absurd. Not close. <laughs> if, if, if a human being were to create a religion like that, you'd have to lock him up. He'd be out of his mind. But, so we but know it's true because it's just too crazy not to be true. But think of this, John. You know, you could go back and you could look at all sorts of documents of this world before Christ, and you could see the ruthlessness of it. You could see people living by letter in, in things and, you know, th- these archaic laws and everything. And you see the radical transformation through Christ. And you got to think, we would not have a constitution, we would not have America without that transformation of the soul that occurred when Christ came into the world. We would not have a pursuit of happiness. We would not have inalienable rights secured by God. Right. So for an atheist, no matter what he says, the facts are clear that he has his freedom because of Christ. Living under the uh, umbrella of the of the belief that he rails against. <laughs> so when Jesus referred to the kingdom in relation to the Beatitudes, he was establishing norms in the kingdom. Uh, the kingdom is giving uh, is being given an edict, uh, a, a new law that actually forms the mystical bodies of evangelism. So the Catholic Church introduced charity to the world. I mean, just tons and tons of history for this and factual information and became an example of this charity throughout the world. Uh, you could even read a book about how uh, uh, Catholicism created Western civilization, which I would recommend. It's an awesome book. And uh, it's uh, how much the charity of Catholicism and the idea of setting up uh, the freedom for man to be able to give his own opinions, which built up, you know, science, which is being destroyed now. But uh, it, is know, the, title uh, of the, the influence of Catholicism was amazing. But uh, I found some information uh, on to to show this charity actually lived, and I uh, found it on the internet. So the Catholic Church operates numerous charitable organizations. The Catholic spiritual teaching includes spreading the gospel, or the Catholic soul's teaching emphasizes support for the sick, the poor, and the afflicted through the corporal and spiritual work of mercy. Catholic Church is the largest non-governmental provider of education and medical services in the world. Uh, farther down we read, the Catholic Church has a long tradition of coordinating charity to the poor, something that was closely linked to the early Christian Eucharist, with the office of deacon being started for this purpose. Over time, this became a part of the bishop's responsibility, and then from 4th century onwards, was decentralized to parishes and monastic orders. After Reformation, the church lost a large amount of the property in the Catholic and Protestant countries, and after a period of sharply increased poverty, poor relief uh, had uh, to become more tax-based. So within the United States, each diocese typically has a Catholic Charities organization that is run as a diocesan corporation, i.e. a civil corporation owned by the diocese of archdiocese. But consider this, each one of these dioceses does that throughout the entire world. 
So the church is living the Beatitudes and has been doing so for 2,000 years. Yeah, and and when you look at how the church is constructed in the Gospels, um, I don't know how you could say that any other church could, could really claim to be that church. Here's another thing, and Matthew talks about this uh, at length, and, and I love what Bishop Fulton Sheen said. He said, if I were an atheist today and I were looking for to, to join the church, and I were looking for which one is the true church, based on the Gospels, well, you would look for the one that has made itself an enemy with everyone. And when you look at it, the, the Protestants are not a, not only and the Muslims are against us, and the secularists and the atheists and the, all of these different groups, the communists and the socialists and they're all against us. What other church on earth could could claim uh, all of these different ever-changing vantage points and ways of looking at things and, and ways of, of, of making one's life better by making the world all about yourself? All of these different ideologies all oppose the unchanging ideology of Catholicism, which makes it very easy to trace it back to its founder, Jesus Christ. Yep, yep, that's uh, no truer words. But uh, a few weeks back, you brought up oaths, and uh, uh, I was kind of uh, at a loss because it was something I had not studied. So now since we're going uh, through the whole Gospel of Matthew, I had to study a little bit on this. So in our in our progression through the gospel, we find the reference to oath in Matthew 5.23. And we read, again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you to swear an oath, not swear an oath at all, either by heaven or for it is God's throne or by the earth for it is his footstool or by Jerusalem. For it is the city of the great king, and do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. So it appears that Jesus might be addressing sophistry here. Uh, Instead of swearing on elaborate, self-righteous, self-indulgent explanations as the Pharisees were doing, placing themselves uh, above the people, it appears that uh, Jesus is establishing a simplicity of thought. Uh, there's almost a little uh, hy- uh, hyperbole here, uh, and Jesus is uh, simplifying things on a way of seeing things where we let our yes be yes and our no be no. So we can see a good correlation with this explanation in Matthew 23 uh, in the famous woes to the Pharisees. And... Uh, so Matthew says, Woe to you, blind guides, that say, Whosoever shall swear by the temple, it is nothing. But he that shall swear by the gold of the temple is a debtor, uh, foolish and blind, for whether is greater the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold. And whoever shall swear by the altar, it is nothing. But whoever shall swear by the gift that is on the, upon the altar is a debtor. Uh, ye foolish and blind, for whether is greater the uh, for 
whether is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifieth the gift. He therefore that sweareth by the altar sweareth by it and all things that are upon it. Whosoever shall swear by the temple sweareth by it and by him that dwelleth in it. And he that sweareth by heaven sweareth by the throne of God and by him that sitteth there thereon. And James further confirms this when he says, uh, but above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven nor by earth nor by any other oath, but let your speech yea be yea and no be no. So, uh, you fall under, not fall under judgment. And uh, to confirm this, the New Jerome Biblical Commentary says, Jesus is here opposing the hypocrisies, sophistry, academic trivialization of life and replacing them with an ideal of simplicity and directness of speech. This ideal need not be opposed to poetry or metaphor. See its parable or oath formula for so long as they are fruitful. So in the same sense is the commandment to not take God's name in vain. And uh, this, what Jesus is saying here is what I've been involved over and over again, where, where people will, instead of just simply, you know, giving a yes or no answer, you know, uh, on the internet in the debate rooms, they turn right to sophistry. Right. And I do. Uh, I've had a couple of people are messaging me that are telling me that uh, again. Uh, I've tried to make several adjustments, but that my audio is not coming through that great. So, and you were mentioning it. So there just must be something wrong with my connection tonight because I've, I've done everything with my mixers that I can to try to boost the audio and make it as strong as I as, as I can. It just doesn't seem to be uh, doesn't seem to be working on that. Uh, well, I want to I want to go back you. to your point. Go ahead. I just want to go back to your point of, of Jesus using hyperbole. You know, there are a lot of people that, uh, you know, they, they like to point to, you know, there's a couple of verses like Matthew 23, 9, where Jesus is talking hyperbole, called no man on earth your father. Well, if you don't believe that Jesus ever used hyperbole, I just want to give you two messages of Jesus. Three, I'll give you three messages of Jesus. And you tell me if this is or these are to be taken literally. One of them is where Jesus said, if your hand be thy fault, cut it off. If your eye be thy fault, pluck it out. Okay? That's one example. Second example is when Jesus says, how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye when you have a wooden beam in your own eye? And the third example would be when he tells the Pharisees that you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Now, I don't think in any of those instances those verses are to be taken literally. What do you think, Luke? Uh, of course not. And, and if you take it in consideration with other verses that would contradict what they're saying, when he talks about Father Abraham, when you have verses in the Old Testament where people are calling for somebody to be a father and a priest to their family, when you have Paul uh, talking to Timothy, uh, basically, Paul taught Timothy everything he knew and said that uh, Timothy is his son in Christ, making him a spiritual father. Do you know I did a study on this one time? 
I did a study on this one time. Uh, I narrowed the search in the Bible for uh, just references to earthly religious figures that were referred to as father. So I excluded references where you were talking about, you know, your natural father or your heavenly father, but just earthly figures that are referred to as father in the Bible. And I found 160 of them. That sounds about right. <laughs> because yeah. it was hyperbole, hyperbole, period. Or else right. you wouldn't find those contradictions. Right. There's no, there's no way around it. You accept facts or you don't. So as we move on, we're, we're moving on to uh, uh, chapter 5, uh, verse 38. We read, you have heard that it uh, hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you not to resist evil. But if one strike thee on the right cheek, turn to him also the other. And if a man will contend with thee in judgment and take away thy coat, let go thy cloak as also unto him. And whoever will force thee uh, uh, one mile, go with him another two. Give to him that asketh to thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not away. So this teaching became part of the way of life of, of the saints in the church. This radical change from the letter, the uh, letter of the law of rule, fear, and temporal punishment to love of even your enemies was spread by the Catholic Church throughout the world, and uh, <laughs> the world should be grateful to this if, if they really understood. In the presentation on the diabolical deception of the born again movement uh, that we did a while back, we talked about how the speaking in tongues was a gift to the Catholic Church. We also should consider the fact that in the beginning was in a race against the extinction of the Christians by the Romans. They were trying to create this, the extinction through putting to death anyone who would not sacrifice to the pagan gods, anyone who would not celebrate the Holy Mass, as we discussed, anyone who possessed holy books. So God needed to spread the faith rapidly and did so in a miraculous way. And these same disciples who were going out into the world expressing a radical new process a living uh, of living life and in loving their enemies communicated in the languages of the world as they replaced evil with good, as they turned the other cheek, as they gave away their cloak in a communication of love that was so attractive to the souls of those who were previously enemies that they had in, in many cases no choice but to desire of how the spiritual peace was obtained. And God prepared even the souls of the enemies for this rapid transformation uh, uh, of, of the world through this mm -hmm. law written in our hearts. So returning to Matthew's gospel, Jesus goes on, you have heard that it hath been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thy enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, do good to them that hate you, and pray to them that persecute and culminate you, that you may be the children of your father who is in heaven. And maketh his son to rise upon the good and the bad, and reigneth upon the just and the unjust. For if you love them that love you, what reward shall you have? Do not even the publicans do this? And if you salute your brethren only, what do you what do you more? Do not also the heathens this? Be you therefore perfect, as also your heavenly Father is perfect. 
that you may be children of the Father, or at baptism, this is my son of whom I am well pleased, a radical transformation in the call for perfection. Yeah, and you know, two things I, two things I wanted to pick up on is, one is, you notice how even those who attack us, even the atheists who say they don't, how much of the Gospels, especially Matthew's Gospel, is incorporated into our normal lexicon, into our normal expressions. For instance, that employee that is going above and beyond, well, it's said of him that uh, he's the guy that always goes the extra mile. Well, where is that taken from? That's taken straight from what you're what you're talking about here. Uh, but the other thing about it is, where they've kind of taken that and turned it on here, Luke, is it says, uh, Jesus says, whoever strikes you in your left cheek, turn to him the other also. They've kind of taken that into always be against violence all the time. Violence is never acceptable. And they even take that to an extreme where war is never acceptable or war or no, or, or any type of um, violence or aggression is, is never acceptable. Um, that's kind of a perversion of what Jesus is saying because Jesus says if somebody strikes you on your cheek, turn the other. But Jesus doesn't say turn the other cheek of the child that you witness that's getting assaulted or the, the No, and this they, also has nothing to do with just wars or anything like that. Right. I'm just saying this is an example of how people take Jesus mercy uh, Jesus message of mercy and they completely turn it into something that he he was not saying never intended to to you get what I'm trying to get at here is that how yeah, they, get, like they get stuck in the, in the literalist frame of mind when it comes to the scriptures, except when you have things like this is my body, you know. Right, right. Then it's symbolic. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so for Protestant friends, the only works Paul says we are not responsible for are the works of the ritual and ceremonial law of the Mosaic law, which Judaizers boasted about keeping. Paul does not contradict himself when he talks about out of faith, open charity, greatest of these is charity. Paul does not contradict himself when he says Abraham's faith was imputed to him as righteousness. What is the whole context of the conversation? Abraham's faith is imputed to him as righteousness as opposed to the errors of the Judaizers. So therefore, James says Abraham was saved by works, which is in perfect agreement with Paul. There's no division between the apostles when it came to faith. Those who are teaching Jews in the church obviously gravitated teaching more from the perspective of what the Jews already understood. So Paul goes obedience of faith in the sacramental life and raises the Ten Commandments to love and virtue, which is the litmus test for transforming grace through which we, we, are, we are saved. You know, uh, this reminded me of a lot of times in the debate rooms, and Catholics do this sometimes, but you know, the, the Protestants in the debate rooms, lots of them do this, 
you know, you're in a conversation and, and you're discussing the most holy things in the universe, the most detrimental things in the universe. And they put up these laugh emojis all over the place. Right. Yeah. This, this, this is not Christianity, folks. This is not holiness. This is not looking at these things as sacred, even if we have differences. So Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3.18, As all of us reflect the Lord's grace with faces that are not covered with veils, we are being changed into his image with ever-increasing glory. This comes from the Lord who is of the Spirit. So Paul, who teaches us obedience to the faith and sacramental life, at the beginning of this radical radical transformation of humility, shows us that in this life we are being transformed through grace. And it's not just an instantaneous event where all of a sudden we're saved. An example is being in the presence of the Eucharist is the fuel for the soul. There is no veil between us, and God is here. Right. So so in the cat to put this together in the uh that what we've discussed through the Beatitudes and everything and this transformation. In the Catechism of the Catholic Church we read uh under the new law or the law of the gospel. The new law or the law of the gospel is the perfection here on earth of the divine law, natural and revealed, it is the work of Christ and is expressed particularly in the Sermon on the Mount. It is also the work of the Holy Spirit, and through him it becomes the interior law of charity. A will established a new covenant. I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel. I will put my laws into their hands and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The new law is the grace of the Holy Spirit given to the faithful in Christ. It works through charity. It uses the Sermon on the Mount to teach us what must be done and makes a, makes use of the sacraments to give uh, us the grace to do it. If anyone should meditate with devotion and perspicuity, <laughs> I had to look that up, having a ready insight to things, keenness, perception. So on the sermon, on the sermon, our Lord gave on the Mount. As we read in the Gospel of St. Matthew, he will doubtlessly find there the perfect way of the Christian life. The sermon contains all the precepts needed to shape one's life. The law of the Gospel fulfills, refines, surpasses, and leads the old law into its perfection. The Beatitudes of the new law fulfills the divine promises by elevating and orienting them toward the kingdom of heaven. It is addressed to those open to accepting this new hope with faith. The poor, the humble, the afflicted, the pure of heart, those persecuted on account of Christ, and so marks out the surprising ways of the kingdom. So it finishes up. The law of the gospel fulfills the commandments of the law. The Lord's Sermon on the Mount, far from abolishing or devaluing the moral prescriptions of the old law, releases their hidden potential and as new demands and as new demands arise from them it reveals their entire divine and human truth it does not add new external precepts but proceeds to reform the heart the root of human acts where man chooses between the pure and the impure where faith hope and charity are formed 
and with them the other virtues. The gospel thus brings the law to its fullness through imitation of the perfection of the Heavenly Father, through forgiveness of enemies and prayers for persecutors, and emulation of the divine generosity. Right. And I think we see that manifested in what we discussed last week. Oh, and by the way, I just want to say for anyone listening, you can go back and listen to previous episodes. Just because you didn't get to listen to it live doesn't mean you can't go back and listen to it in the archives. They're all saved. So all of the episodes of this series will be saved in the archives so you can listen uh, to all of them. So in the last episode, we touched on this idea of uh, Joseph kind of being the head of the curve because the law stated that a woman who was guilty of adultery or a woman who was caught in the sin of adultery, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, the law stated that she was to be stoned. And yet Joseph saw beyond that. Joseph saw the law of mercy as being greater than the law of justice. Jesus, this is what God meant when he said, I desire mercy rather than justice. And this is what Jesus says to the Pharisees. Learn the meaning of I desire mercy rather than justice. The Pharisees and the Judaizers, they never got that. And this is what we see John railing against the Pharisees when he said, do not presume to say to yourself that you are children of Abraham, for God can raise up from these stones children to Abraham. So, Luke, in a, in a nutshell, what's being said here is that man will not be saved by who he is. Uh, he'll be saved by what he becomes. Right? Exactly. Exactly. Transforming grace. Yep. You are not saved by faith alone. We are not saved by intellectual assent to a belief. We are saved by a transformation of the soul. So when Protestants say, you know, Catholics have the works-based foundation, this is so, 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 so not true. (laughs) The only works that have value, works of unconditional love, which we cannot perform without the grace of God. And just just the foundation of this is easy to see by just looking at the world before Christ and after Christ. So this is a good segue into Matthew 5.31 because all of this comes together in our marriage. So we're just talks about marriage. So it is easy to conclude that in the state of transforming grace in this new world of radical change through grace and the law written in our hearts and being poor in spirit and humility is how God gave us the tools to keep our marriage vows and which are sacramental. No longer in the letter of the law where the Jews put away their wives and even stoned them but seeing marriage through the, through the new Christ consciousness, per se. So in Matthew 5, 31, 32, we read, And it hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a bill of divorce. But I say to you that whoever shall put away his wife, accepting the cause of fornication, maketh her to commit adultery. And he that shall marry her that is put away committeth adultery. So as we discussed and we talked about the, the faith of Mary and what she was risking when she said yes to God, 
fornication, even uh, adultery against one who's betrothed, uh, not yet married, had a penalty of stoning. So Jesus mentions nothing of stoning here, and these harsh penalties, penalties all go away by moving from the letter of the law to the spirit. But he does mention a particular reason. The only reason for putting away his wife is for the infidelities, and infidelities will lead to mortal sin. So in, in the first law is physical death, and fulfillment is a spiritual death. So there's and, still punishment I, for, for the law. And I want, something, I want to interject something real clear here, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but um, I, I think when it says that when Jesus says you may not put away your spouse, except for uh, infidelity, this is not necessarily referring to a one-time thing in which the spouse is uh, repentant, but this is referring to a repeated type of situation. And I'm not saying adultery is ever good. What's that? Yeah, that's, that's a good clarification because it becomes habitual, and it's, it's mortal sin. So you're living with somebody in, in mortal sin. Uh, who You're living with somebody who's committing sin and is now a harlot to the marriage. And we right. saw how this uh, was, was portrayed between the Jews and God. Right. But this is not to so, say that adultery is ever a good thing. It's never to say that. But what it is saying is that a marriage... Uh, between two people who genuinely love each other and two people that are genuinely committed to each other can survive one indiscretion. Um, it, it, it's not a death sentence necessarily. Uh, but, of right. course, this repeated, you know, ongoing, you know, no intention of stopping, totally different situation. I love how this works because – when we address this and you come up with these clarifications, it's like a synergism where uh, the two yeah. become uh, you know, greater than the two. You know? So it, uh, it works very well. Yeah, I think, so, I, think it's, I think we're working. I'm almost like the color man. <laughs> <laughs> You're the play-by-play so, play guy. Really have, I'm the color guy. I guess we don't have much time left here. Uh, we'll, we'll try to get through the rest of it, but we might not make it for two hours. We'll try. So when we look at this time on earth compared to eternity, it will always be easy to think that there's an eternal message in marriage. Uh, did God establish marriage for the primary purpose, showing us his love for his bride, the church? Uh, Paul elaborates on this relationship in his letter to Corinthians. And uh, the Corinthians are a Gentile uh, community. So, but to them that are married, not I, but the Lord commandeth that the wife depart not from her husband. And she depart, that she remain unmarried, or be reconciled to her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife. For the rest I speak, not the Lord, if by any brother hath a wife that believeth not, and she consent to dwell with him, let him not put her away. And if any woman hath a husband that believeth not, and he consent to dwell with her, let her not uh, uh, put away her husband. For the believing husband is sanctified by the uh, uh, the the unbelieving husband sanctified by the believing wife, 
and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the believing husband. Otherwise, your children should be unclean, but now they are holy. This is a, something a radical because we've also gone from circumcision in the genetic line to, to a spiritual line where a lot of these uh, you know, past uh, uh, laws broken are, 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 do not apply in the, in the spiritual realm. And Paul shows us his marriage relationship in relationship to God's marriage to his bride, the church, in his letter uh, to the church of Ephesus. And he writes, let women be subject to their husbands as the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body. Therefore, as the church is subject to Christ, so also let the wives be to their husbands in all things. Husband loves your wife, love your wives, as Christ also loved the church and delivered himself up for it, that he might sanctify it, cleansing it by the lover of the water and the word of life. We've shown that to be baptism in the past. That he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So also ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself, for no man ever hateth his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, as also Christ does the church. Remember, he's speaking to the Gentile churcher. Uh, because we are members of him, body of his flesh and of his bones, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother leave his home. They shall be two in one flesh. And he says, this is a great sacrament, or in some other uh, texts, say mystery, which is where we get mystery, mysterian, sacramentum, sacrament. And he goes on, but I speak of Christ and the church. So he's showing the spiritual nature of the the marriage between God and, and uh, the bride, the church. Paul shows a parallel between the marriage between a man and a woman and between Christ and the church. It is clear that when Paul is writing about this spiritual marriage between Christ and the church, He's referring to a marriage that has already come about, uh, if you look at the way it's, it, it, it's textualized. So as Augustine said, the marriage bed was the cross. In the themes of the bride and the groom across the Old Testament, it does not culminate in a marriage festival, but a marriage sacrifice. And in the perfected covenant relationship between Christ and church, there is no separation from the very flesh of his body. And yet this so, idea, idolized idea of marriage today bears no resemblance to this, and that's why marriages don't last, because it's, it's built on this pie-in-the-sky, fluffy, warm, fuzzy feeling kind of love that doesn't bear any resemblance to this sacrificial, sacramental love. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So in Matthew 6, as we begin chapter 6 here, here, Jesus is teaching a contrast between an egotistical walk of life, the Pharisees walk, and thinking they are better than others because they followed the letter of the Mosaic Law and saw those who did not follow it in the level of legalism uh, they did as inferior. So those who are poor in spirit and express an inner sense of love live beyond the letter of the law. Take heed that you do not your justice before men to be seen by them. Otherwise you shall not have a reward of your father who's in heaven. Therefore, when thou dost an alms deed, sound not a trumpet before thee as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets 
that they may be honored by men. Amen, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when thou dost alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doth, that thy alms be in a secret, and thy father who seeth in secret will repay thee. So in Matthew 6, 9 through 18, we now, have just, the Lord. Can I interject yeah. something real quick here? Yeah, go ahead. There, there, there's that hyperbole again, okay? <laughs> in case you missed that. Jesus is, <laughs> your left hand is going to know what your right hand is doing, okay? It's, it's impossible to, okay? Jesus is speaking hyperbole here, okay? All right. I just thought I'd interject that. Go ahead. <laughs> Dang left hand. <laughs> <laughs> So Matthew 6, 9 through 18, we have the Lord's Prayer. But before we examine it, we, we must understand where we are spiritually when we recite it and where we are supposed to recite it. Matthew has been teaching the kingdom of God. He teaches the kingdom is also inside us. And yet we have discussed how God sees across all time at, at once. And we begin to discuss how there is a, a spousal relationship with God and his people. So as God's people, the bride, the flesh of Christ, the body with Christ as head of the body and mediators of the Father, we are in the sacramental kingdom, but our hope is for an eternal entry into this kingdom. And Peter shows this when he writes, And you employing all care minister in your faith virtue, and in virtue knowledge, and in knowledge abstinence, and in abstinence patience, and in patience godliness, and in godliness love of brotherhood, and love of brotherhood charity, for these things be with you and abound, they will make you to be neither empty nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he that hath not these things with him is blind and groping, having forgotten that he was purged from his old sins, baptism. Wherefore, brethren, labor the more that by good works you may make sure your calling and election for doing these things, you shall not sin at any time. For so an entrance shall be ministered to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So in living in Christ in charity, those who are purged of past sins, which could only be baptism and into the body, uh, this is past, not fear. And though we are in the kingdom, we focus on charity. We focus on transforming grace. So as Peter tells us, so that we may have everlasting entrance. So if Paul tells us that those who partake of the one are part of the one body, those who are the body make up the kingdom. Therefore, the our Father is to be prayed by those in the kingdom in their hope of an eternal entry. But for now, even uh, pray that the will of God be done in uh, in the kingdom on earth. So, uh, when we read the Father, we'll start here at verse 9. Thus, therefore, shall you pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Uh, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And in the do it reigns, give us this day our super substantial bread, and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And least not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. For if you forgive men their offenses, your heavenly Father will forgive you also your offenses. So, Matthew 6.15, the Catholic Bible. 
if you not forgive others, then you're, or if you will not forgive men, neither will your father forgive you. So again, notice in the Dewey Reigns version from the Latin Vulgate, Jerome translates the early text into super substantial bread. Uh, give us this day our super substantial bread. So in the body of Christ, in the man, our fathers prayed before receiving the Eucharist for 1,400 years before Protestants began in the Holy Mass, which is the world's Passover. Uh, from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, we read, Give us a stay our daily bread. This is generally recognized to mean pray for our basic daily necessities. This is true. Yet hidden in the mundane and seemingly redundant word daily is the veiled, mysterious uh, Greek word, epiusius. Epiusius is a unique word, sacramental-like in nature, a visible sign of a hidden reality. Epiusius occurs nowhere else in the Greek Bible except in the same Our Father passage in Luke 11.3 and the Apostles' Didache. In fact, Epiusius is not found anywhere else at all in the Greek literature. The only recorded reference to Epiusius ever is Jesus' prayer. So as the early father and master of Greek language, Origen concludes, Epiusius was invented by the evangelist. The, the millennia uh, have bore out his assertion that Epiusius was a new word, a neologism. <laughs> These words are, are a problem for me. Of uncertain etymology. The usual Greek word for daily hemera is after all used elsewhere in the New Testament, but not in this instance. Why did St. Matthew and St. Luke feel compelled to create a new Greek word to accurately reflect the word of Jesus? They most likely had to use a new word to faithfully translate a novel idea or a unique Aramaic word that Jesus used in his prayer. What was Jesus' new idea? Although there are multiple levels of meaning to Epiusis, Jesus is making a clear allusion to the Eucharist. Our daily bread is one translation of a word that goes far above our basic needs for sustenance and invokes a supernatural needs. So for 2,000 years, the Catholic Church has been praying the Lord's Prayer right before we receive our bread from heaven. Yeah. You know, it's, it's this is one of the biggest problems with Sola Scriptura is uh, this, you know, this idea that Okay, the Bible that you're reading, the King James English Bible that you're reading, you know, was translated. Matthew's Gospel, as we discussed in our last episode, was most likely first written in Aramaic, translated to Greek, and translated to English. So, you know, there's things like this that are lost, uh, like like this word, example from Luke's Gospel is kekuratomene. We don't have a word in the English language that fully expresses what that word uh, signifies. And this this just is another example of why Sola Scriptura doesn't work. Exactly. And to give more context to this, uh, let's look at Jesus' command to the first priest of his church. Paul tells us it's dinner time. 
was my wife. <laughs> We're almost done, honey. <laughs> it's dinner time, John. <laughs> okay. Hi, John. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> so, to give us more context to this, let's look at Jesus coming to the first priest of his church. Uh, what he said, do this in memory of me. Uh, we discussed this before, but again, we, we don't know what the, the audience we have now. So do this in remembrance is the establishment of the covenant memorial of the cross, the second part of the sacrifice and the offering of the fruit of the sacrifice to the Father in the unbloody form of the body and blood of Christ. And Paul tells us, for as often as you shall eat this bread, drink this cup, you shall show the death of the Lord until he comes again. There's no way you could do this. There's no way Paul could make sense unless the Eucharist is real. So right. what is the purpose of remembrance or in Greek anomnesis, which means in sacrificial tone, make present once again. The primary purpose of the royal priesthood is to present the covenant memorial of the cross Father, through our one mediator, the memorial, our high priest, Melchizedek, uh, will offer prayer and supplication for all men as Paul's letter to Timothy explains before he talked about Thanksgiving, Eucharistasis. So this fulfills the type in the bread of the presence, or also known as the bread of the face of God, that was in front of the veil that always needed to be before the Father. It fulfilled the prophecy of Malachi, where he wrote from the rising of the sun until it's going down, my name is great among the Gentiles, and everywhere a clean oblation is offered in my name. Paul says he sanctifies an oblation through the Holy Spirit for the Gentiles. So I would ask our Protestant friends, what did the first century Jews understand an oblation was? What does it mean when an oblation is sanctified by the Holy Spirit? Irenaeus, a disciple of Polycarp, who's a disciple of John the Apostle, said all the apostles were priests. Did he lie? I mean, it was there from the right. beginning. So anonymous, make present once again, uh, the apostles and early believers recognized the sacrificial character of Jesus' instructions. So it has sacrificial overturn, over, overtones, and it occurs in a sacrificial nature in multiple times uh, in, in Scripture. So in the Father is the prayer to give us our super substantial bread, our bread from uh, heaven, prayed for in the kingdom right before the Holy Spirit consecrates the gifts, giving us our super substantial bread. And Paul said, Christ, our true Paschal Lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us keep the feast. That right there is showing that the bread from heaven is the sacrifice of the Paschal Lamb, the true Passover for the general redemption of the world. Right. I want to read something. I want to jump ahead uh, just uh, as an just to give as an example because this is something that you see in Matthew's gospel over and over and over again. You see this theme where he'll he'll give he'll he'll give an event or he'll give something that Jesus says, and then he follows it with a commentary. So I'm just going to give you an example. Uh, he quotes Jesus uh, read. Uh, he quotes Jesus speaking here. Everyone that heareth these words and doeth them shall be like the wise man that built his house upon the rock, 
And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and they beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded on the rock. And everyone that hears these words and do them not shall be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall thereof. And in the past, when Jesus had fully ended these words, the people were in admiration of his doctrine. For he was teaching them as one having power and not as the scribes and Pharisees. So right here, Matthew is contrasting the teaching style of the scribes and Pharisees who would always call back to one of the earlier rabbis, would always quote back to the rabbinical teachings of one of the earlier rabbis. You see commentary after events, commentary after quotes from Matthew all through his gospel, Luke, it's almost as if Matthew is giving us a catechism in inside of a gospel. Exactly. And if you're not on that rock, then... <laughs> right. So he's not only telling us what Jesus said, so Matthew is very, very clearly laying out all of these events in a meticulous order. There's nothing haphazard about Matthew's gospel. He's laying out every event in a specific order and then telling you what each of these events means and what each of these teachings means. He's explaining as he goes, and uh, it just just speaks to the meticulous nature of Matthew and how he he didn't want to just – Matthew's gospel is just, uh, okay, here's what happened, and he lays it out as as a history text. He's extrapolating the meaning as he goes. And that's a great conclusion for today, John. (laughs) And for those of you who are enjoying this series, um, you'll be able to find all of them on the four persons. uh, That's fourpersons.com or go directly to our Blog Talk Radio show. And uh, we will be back one week from today. Luke, uh, today is September 11th. And um, so we're going to end in a closing prayer, and we're going to dedicate this prayer to the families of those who were lost on that day. If you would lead us in a prayer, please. Lord, I thank you for the gift of life. I thank you for the gift of love. And I hope that you take that love and wrap it around those families that have lost uh, people, all the sorrow that's involved in that, which is ongoing today, of course. There'll be an empty spot in their hearts the rest of their lives. But I just pray that you give them grace and that they come closer to you through that grace. Amen. Amen. Uh, Luke, I can't wait till next week to pick it up with the Gospel of Matthew, Part 3. I'm late for dinner. (laughs) Have a blessed night. (laughs) Have a great day, John. Uh, Have a great day.